Welcome to Videophobe. I am starting a series on Fate, the Winx saga. If you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix. You're welcome to do so and watch along with me. Each, um, I haven't set a cadence yet, actually, so I won't say each week, but every episode I'll be sharing my thoughts and feelings on each episode of the series. Content warning, there are some themes of sexual assault and I probably will be cursing. So just FYI, if that's not your jam, no worries, probably skip this entire podcast. <laughs> so let's get started. Okay, so first episode of the Winx saga, I had no idea what to expect. I hadn't heard about this. I had just seen it in my recommended on Netflix. And so I just kind of came into it thinking I just want something easy to review, something that doesn't feel like a huge commitment, um, but I like TV and I'm a magical person, so I figured I would try this out. So we open on a man. He like walks through a portal into a dark forest. He's eerie. He looks up and sees a dead thing in a tree. He's spooked. He's looking around and we see that he sees something and it growls at him and he gets scared and he runs away and then he trips and then he's like clearly injured he's trying to crawl his way back to the portal we see this sweet little lamb in the corner of the screen and his hands make it just past the veil but instead the beast drags him away and we see blood splatter onto the lamb and innocence is lost <laughs> I'm so sorry for making that metaphor that obvious, but it had to be said. It's too obvious and too good of a, a metaphor right in the beginning. So we pop open to the boarding school. A vague pop song is playing in the background. We're panning past all of your stereotypical groups of people. We've got a redhead that is obviously the main character. And of course, she's like trying to find her way and the cute jock catches up to her to to bully her he's like oh my god you're trying so hard running to class and then she's like okay but I don't need help thank you and he's like um I wasn't offering that's super presumptuous of you and at this point I was like I'm sorry did I not just hear you make a million assumptions about this girl <laughs> he continues on these same assumptions and he's like oh you're so presumptuous so you must be a fairy and she's like, I am a fairy. Turns out she's in a boarding school full of fairies. He's like, where are you from? And she says, California. And he's like, oh, so not from the other world, which sounds a lot like, oh, so you're not like the other girls. And then all of a sudden the jock is like, um, I'm not being nice right now, but like, let me show you around. And then she actually does call him out for mansplaining. All, all of a sudden, like, the sentimental music starts to play and the jock's face changes. And I don't know. I, it was weird because I feel like that first interaction, going out of your way to, like, stop talking to your friend and go bully this other girl, it's like, first of all, are we in first grade? And second, now all of a sudden, it plays weird. It plays, like, because she's not from the other world, that's why he's being nice to her because he's like oh, you're not like the other girls. But then you also have to wonder, oh, if she didn't say that, if she was like, I'm from this other realm, would he have still acted that way towards her? I don't know. It, it gave me pause. I wasn't sure what to think about it. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. Okay, so then his friend comes up to him and he's like, um, are you going to chase her? Like, he's treating him like a freaking weirdo. 
And then our, like, main character, redhead girl, walks up to this, like, prim and proper mean girl of the academy, um, who's clearly styled after, like, the OG mean girl, Rachel McAdams. She even has that same haircut that she's got going on in the notebook. She even has a cute little mole on her face, just like Rachel McAdams. And you can already tell that this girl is going to be the mean girl. She's obviously the popular girl. <laughs> like, the one of the first things that she says is, Oh, that's so American of you. <laughs> we know. I, I know. We know. This is a cringy high school drama about magical fairies. So, I get it. The girl, the mean girl, flaunts her little family ring that she has, which major TVD vibes. If anyone watched the Vampire Diaries, gigantic family ring. It's funny because it's the very first episode. Elena has an interaction with Stefan and she's like, nice ring. And he's like, oh, thanks. It's a family ring. And he's like, pretty weird, right? And Elena says, well, there's rings and then there's that. <laughs> I have this memorized because it's the thing that plays on Netflix every time you like scroll over TVD. Also, I've seen all of TVD and I agree, you guys, I agree. It's very cringy, but I still did my part and watched the entire thing. <laughs> so I also got very major TVD vibes from this show. So that will come up later on as this episode continues. So we get vibes from this mean girl that she's like honestly not very happy to be at the school and we don't know why. We'll learn a little more about that later. Um, but we cut to the headmistress. They're now in the headmistress's office. She seems really sweet. Our main girl, we find out her name is Bloom. Um, she's kind of making jokes about how weird and cool this place is, discovering fairies, and we get this, like, tiny bit of wonder here. The map is moving. It's, like, going over Solaris. I believe Solaris is a star constellation. Um, correct me if I'm wrong there, but it's just cool to see that wondrous piece. So I was honestly, like, I gotta admit I was a little bit disappointed here because I was getting a little bit of that Harry Potter vibes, that first movie with the moving staircase and all the first years are kind of like losing their minds with all the cool stuff and the moving portraits and the great hall with the candles that fly all by themselves. Like that first Harry Potter movie, we were immersed in this magical world and we just got a moment to be in awe and wonder and it felt like they were giving us a moment to do that here, but they didn't quite go all the way. It's kind of mirrored, actually, by Bloom's dialogue. She mentions that she's kind of disappointed at not seeing wings. And then, of course, the headmistress just takes that completely seriously and says, well, we used to have wings, but transformation magic was lost, which gave me McGonagall vibes. <laughs> yeah, I just... I think that these shows sometimes skip over all of the magic and the wonder and I don't love that honestly because some of like part of the reason that I'm even watching a show like this is because it's fun it's because it's going to be like action-packed and cool and we're going to get this feeling of like oh this whole new magical world just opened up and I do sometimes feel like the newer shows take this very dark action-oriented like, safety is a real concern for these children 
view or take on the magical world. And I just, I guess I love that Harry Potter didn't do that right away. It did. It made it very clear that danger was a very real thing, but they didn't really have to deal with it until they were in like sixth year. Well, actually fourth year when Diggory dies. That was the first time that we were like really hit with that feeling of, oh, like shit, like there's a, there's some real stuff to be worried about here in the magical world. But until then, we felt like, oh, we're still kind of getting introduced to this beautiful place. And then, and then, you know, of course, things go to shit from there. (laughs) Anyway, okay, so the headmistress says that magic can be dangerous. And so the curriculum is designed keeping that in mind and that they're going to be really slow and introduce her to the idea of magic and and controlling her own magic she's like trust the process Alfia is like this awesome school we've done this and this and um bloom is kind of sitting there like wait what do you mean you're gonna go slow and the headmistress is like like i need you to trust that we know what we're doing here and bloom is like yeah, but the only reason that I came here was because you promised I would be able to learn how to control my magic. And the headmaster's mistress is like, no, you came here because you really didn't have another choice. (laughs) Which, choice and free will is such an important theme for me to really feel like there is choice. And this, like, feeling of entrapment, you feel right from the very beginning with multiple characters, and I'll go over that here in just a second, but she's not the only one who's feeling this way. And we get this real sense that even though we're opened up to this whole new magical world, there are things that we don't quite understand yet. We cut to a scene where Bloom is FaceTiming her parents. (laughs) Apparently you can make collect calls between realms, which is great. But her parents obviously have no idea that she's at fairy school. So of course her mom is overly critical. Her dad seems nice. But honestly, we we don't really have any context at this point to make real conclusions about her parents. But her mom does seem like she's very curious. She's like, oh, it's your first day. You have to do this and you have to do that. And it's it's very... I have things to say about her mom. Someone mentions Lord of the Flies and her dad is like, Lady of the Flies, don't be sexist. Okay, I think that that is such a cheap shot at being like, we're not a sexist TV show, we call it Lady of the Flies. Like, it's so over exaggerated, and I just find it kind of cringy. Also, Lord of the Flies was absolutely horrendous and rude to think that Lady of the Flies would ever happen, but whatever. Um, I can't help but think that that's kind of a foreshadowing moment that the series is actually going to be less about the magic and the powers and the friendship and like fighting things that are going on and more about like alliances and their the show's take on human nature just because that's like a very particular reference and she's like who knows with five girls living in one small space how long it's going to take to devolve into the lord of the flies so could be a bit of foreshadowing may not be anyway at that moment a black girl walks in and bloom is like obviously super uncomfortable she's still on the phone with her parents and she doesn't want to be and they're starting to ask some more uncomfortable questions she's trying to get off the phone and so this new girl that just walked in walks over and is like okay lights out and she starts turning on and off the lights um in her room and kind of saves her 
from being on the phone with her parents for a super long time. Kind of feels like an instant friendship is about to happen. Bloom tells her new roommate, whose name is Aisha, that her parents are both human and that the headmistress says that she must have some like long dormant magical bloodline. There's a fairy somewhere in her family tree. I kind of instantly felt like that's probably not true. That's the setup. That's just like what she's being told at this point. But I have a theory that Bloom is actually super like finds it really hard to trust people and this is just like a quality of hers that when people get too close to the truth she just kind of storms off which she does in this scene she starts to head towards the orientation party as she's leaving the room she sees Stella who's changing for the orientation party and she's like oh my gosh are you changing lol like I can't believe that you have to wear like multiple different outfits in the same day and Stella's like well people expect me to care about how I look. I think this is a very interesting conversation because, of course, the way that she phrases it, you're like, well, damn, that must be a lot of pressure to have to care about how you look and not because you actually care, but because other people expect you to care. That probably explains why she's kind of like, I I don't like it here. Like, I I don't feel free. I don't feel myself. But at the same time, the way that she says it, you can tell that she's saying it almost like she's wearing it like a badge of honor because that expectation and meeting that expectation has probably afforded her like a really nice comfy spot on the food chain. And so you hear her say that with with some amount of pride, like, well, people expect me to care for how I look. She's almost dignified in saying it. But it's it's also, like, even digging a little bit deeper into that, it's almost like she has to wear it, like a badge of honor. There's no other way, because if she actually let herself feel how restricting that is to always have to look a certain way, it would probably make her have to reevaluate a lot of other stuff. And I really like this exchange, because you can see that this person is obviously a master of control. And then in the next second, she uses magic to turn on a light and explains that magic is related to emotion. It could be good thoughts, it could be bad thoughts, but you're harnessing that emotional power and alchemizing it into magic, which, by the way, is how magic works. (laughs) So that is kind of interesting. They they actually got it right. A lot of these shows don't really get it all that right, but that's that's true. You know, you can use the power of your emotions to, to channel it into your magical workings. We get this, like, brilliant shot of Stella where half of her face is lit when she's saying, like, it could be bad thoughts. And you can see, like, this fierceness that's coming out to play a little bit. And Bloom notices, actually. She notices that while she was looking at her, that is when she did the magic. That's when she turned on the light with the magic while she was looking straight at Bloom. And so she even calls her out. She says, like, do you fear me or hate me? Like, I don't think that you love me, which is really bold. And it's interesting that Bloom is willing to have this conversation, but not one that's too soft. Like, earlier you see her with Aisha, and she seems almost defensive, at Aisha's judgment, which I read as curiosity. But when she's talking to Stella, then she's willing to ask, like, where are these negative emotions coming from? It's not that she's necessarily picking a fight, but it does feel a bit confrontational. So I thought that was interesting. Back to Stella, she she says she doesn't know Bloom very well, which to me indicates it's probably fear, fear of the unknown. But that when she does know her better, she'll find something to love. I really like this exchange because, again, going back to earlier, we're talking about how Stella 
has to maintain this perfection. She's maintaining this tower of physical, mental, emotional, and by extension, magical control. And you almost feel her breaking down here because she's like, oh, I have to find something to love. We're almost foreshadowing a tower moment. If you read tarot, you know that a tower moment is breaking down a foundation because Stella has this foundation that's built on illusion, on control, probably manipulation. There's probably not a ton of self-love or self-actualization. She probably hasn't had, honestly, she's fairly young, so she probably hasn't had time in her early life to really seek truth. She also talked about that family ring earlier, so there's probably pressure there as well. On the other hand, we almost can assume that Bloom has lost control at some point, that this is also foreshadowing something later in the show that we're going to learn about, that something bad probably happened. So you have this like interesting pairing of over-control with Stella and lack of control with Bloom. I really like that. Bloom is like this really sarcastic protagonist, which I found really lovable and relatable as the main character, just because we're being introduced to this magical world through her eyes, through the eyes of an outsider. And for so many of us who over the past couple of years have come into our psychic gifts, who are navigating this new world to us that has opened up of like witches and mystics and readers and seers, that can feel really overwhelming, just like it is for Bloom in the show. She's trying to show everyone how cool and calm and almost kind of distant that she is. But in reality, she's so excited and she's so eager. She just wants to learn and she wants to have control over the powers that she has. And and that kind of drew me in in the first place to the show, that it's like, it's just good timing. And I'm hoping that I get to connect with you guys out there who are listening, who are also new to this magical world that we're all exploring. Yeah, I just thought that was really interesting. And I really like that they did that with Bloom in this show particularly, that she's very new to it and we get to experience it with her. We get introduced to a new character. Her name's Tara. This chick is the green witch. She's the plant mama. I would assume she's probably a lesbian. We love Tara. Like, we already get a reference to the secret garden. Stella's like, um, keep your little garden secret, Tara. Immediately is like, actually, that's not what the secret garden was about. She's like, something is private. Everyone actually doesn't get the benefit of appreciating it. We've gotten three books at this point. We've gotten the secret garden, the Lord of the Flies, and Harry Potter. I think that it's actually alluding to different themes throughout the show. Like, Lord of the Flies, probably a breakdown of society, probably... Okay, personally, I don't think that Lord of the Flies represents society. I think that that book was written and whoever the writer was, like, really thought he did something there and that he was, like, illustrating what society would do in the case of a breakdown. Personally, I don't think that that's actually true. So, anytime that a TV show or a book or a movie references that as like the breakdown of society that they're going to illustrate, I already get a little bit cautious because I just don't think that that's how it happens. Then we have Harry Potter, which a big theme in that is like love and friendship will always win. And so I I do hope that there is this kind of interesting play between the themes in Lord of the Flies and the themes in Harry Potter. In The Secret Garden, she talks about how access to the garden, which I, you know, I think is an allegory for knowledge in general, is really important and is should be accessible to a lot of people. So at this point, I'm like making the theory, I'm theorizing that these themes might come up later in the series. Anyway, okay. You see that Tara has a, a roommate, which her name is Musa or Musa. I'm not sure how to say it. 
she goes on a, a little monologue. She's talking about her family, how they grew up near Alfia, and she's really excited to go here. And Musa's kind of, she's like humoring her, but she's not really listening. Musa's like the alternative fashion girl. She has her little space buns. She has hoop earrings. She has a red leather jacket. She's ethnically ambiguous. She does something purple with her eyes, which they don't explain at all, but she makes fun of Tara. And then it seems like she feels bad, but then she ignores Tara. She like puts her headphones in, pretends she's listening to music, and she ignores her. So at that moment, Aisha walks in and is asking about a place to swim, which honestly feels like an excuse to go back to, like, the cute jock from the beginning because, like, immediately as soon as she's like, oh, you could go in the pond where the specialists practice, we, like, immediately cut to a scene where there's, like, a bunch of people sparring together. Fight training scene with that jock dude from earlier. His name is Sky, And the asshole friend who walked over and was making fun of him, his name is Riven, which I had to look up because I don't think anyone ever actually mentions his name. So his friend is making fun of him for liking Bloom. And then Riven is like, well, she's crazy because she's a redhead, but like probably an amazing shag. This is like the only shit that writers can come up with for goofy boys is that they're just misogynistic assholes, which don't get me wrong. They are. And those people do exist. But I bet you that Sky, who we're supposed to be rooting for at this point, isn't that great? of a dude, we probably will never actually find out anything about him except for his backstory. Like, we probably will never learn about his actual personality except for the things that have happened to him. But the fact that he's just not actively talking about women, that they're objects, is the thing that makes him more interesting or better than Riven. That too being said, in the very first scene that we meet Sky, he is already bullying bloom i yeah wasn't my favorite so at this point i got really curious about the writers so i went to look and look them up turns out three of them also wrote for tbd so no fucking surprise there also kind of funny with the styling because in the spinoff of tbd we get legacies tbd is vampire diaries i'm not sure i made that clear earlier the main character in legacies is also a redhead named hope Um, And honestly, Hope kind of reminds me of Bloom. Both of them are, like, extremely powerful, kind of, you know, sarcastic. They're both naturally gifted. They're very opinionated. They're not afraid of a little confrontation, but honestly, they both find it very hard to trust people. The only difference between the two characters is that Bloom is completely new to this world, and Hope is firmly rooted. She's from one of the most powerful magical families in the world. Aisha feels like she's going to be the Bonnie of the show, honestly. I was tempted to make more parallels, but honestly, I just wanted to get back to actually watching the show. Okay, cute epic fight scene where Sky finally defeats Riven. We get this, like, ridiculous shot of his hairy armpits, and Riven says, oh my god, I, like, don't care about school because I'm too busy being high. I'm so over this, like, overplayed character. Like, this is obviously the Tyler of this show. So then we find out that Sky's like daddy person is the trainer for the athletes at school. Essentially, we don't get the whole story here, but he says that his dad was Andreas of Arachleon, who's probably dead, but we don't really know. And he literally said the trainer literally says that made Sky a legacy admission. Like how <laughs> This is obviously just all three Vampire Diaries writers just writing the Vampire Diaries all over again. 
So I had to pause here because in Legacies, Hope is the legacy and her love interest is like the weird newcomer. And they just reversed it here. Like they made Sky the legacy and his redheaded love interest is the weird newcomer. Just an interesting crossover reference. Okay, sorry. I fully glossed over the fact that this guy, Selva, who's the trainer, tells the kids that he owns them. I I can't even go into that. Like, okay, George Washington, gross. Um, he starts this, like, cute little monologue about hard work. And then he's like, this place will seem like hell until actual hell comes. Because apparently they're training for combat. We're in military school. Like, okay. Also, another parallel to Legacies, because they also deal with, like, monsters from this, like, pit of a hell-like realm. So, again, like, have you not burned through all of your material at this point? Anyway, so the trainer is, like, reprimanding a kid for laughing, and he's like, oh, there's these creatures called the Burned Ones, and one of them killed my dad, and we all should be scared of them all the time. We have to train, like, our lives depend on it, because, like, otherwise we'll all die. Uh, and if you're, like, not feeling like that, like, you're too soft. It's ridiculous. He also, he kind of gives me Klaus energy. <laughs> like, he's broken, he's emotional, while at the same time telling everyone else that they're, like, too soft. And, okay, so this is what I don't love about Julie Plex shows, because he goes on this entire monologue about how, like, they just have to be scared and, and focused on training all the time. These shows never leave space for joy or fun. I'm giving credit to Julie Pleck because she's the one who's in all of the interviews for TVD. So anyway, she writes these shows like there's no space for joy or fun when we know from research that only allowing space for fear only grows more fear and it only allows us to move from a place of fear, which leads to poor decision making. And like, I get it. It's very hard in reality, to choose love and to choose joy and to choose victory and to focus on what's working while also being able to fix what's not. Like, I get it. That is very hard. But this story is overplayed. Like, we saw it in TVD. We saw it in three series of The Vampire Diaries and The Originals and The Legacies show, which is kind of starting to turn into that too. It's like, it's almost starting to feel like propaganda. I think we're ready to move into the next phase of this where there is room for joy where there is room for peace, where there's room to pause and to love and acknowledge their victories. Like, I'm not saying don't be relentless, right? Fighting for a cause is very important, but that doesn't have to be all we do. The reason I say this is because I do think that these parallels are being made between fighting the bad guys, quote unquote, bad guys, to activism and fighting for justice in the real world. And the thing is, it is hard work, but it is also the long game. And you have to give yourself room to breathe or you'll burn out. The reason I'm so passionate about this is because all of the Vampire Diaries is just the entire show is just adding more and more and more demands onto children who never really have the time to process their trauma or their grief. Even in like the first episode of the Vampire Diaries, Elena constantly talks about how she used to be this happy kid before her parents died. And then she never gets to that point again of being truly happy. Not trauma bonded because she just, she becomes trauma bonded more than a couple of times. Actually, just a couple of times. But like, she never is happy. And that sucks. You know, like, 
I don't know. I feel like we deserve that series where there is actual true happiness and we get like that true friendship. Like at the end of every Harry Potter movie, we finally get this resolution and they get like a summer. It's punctuated to just to just exist, right? That's not always true, but I do think that in storytelling, it is important to tell those stories as if there is there is time in between. Okay. Anyway, my goodness, what a rant. So Silva goes on this monologue about how the burned ones might not be gone. There's a barrier for a reason. They're protecting us, blah, blah, blah. At the same time, we're getting these like sideline images of Riven um, going outside the border and smoking. And he's like freaked out. He finds this dead body, probably the dead body that we saw in the beginning, like man getting killed. The teachers all congregate outside. They're like, oh, it's probably a burned one. But the headmistress at that moment is like, basically is like, I'm literally too scared to deal with the reality of this. So we're just going to ignore the problem until we know more. First of all, I hate this choice because it plays out like the show gets a pat on the back for casting a woman as the headmistress. But then it also portrays her as weak and unable to face the truth. It just feels like having your cake and eating it too, and I'm getting that reference from the Bechtel cast, which you guys should all go and listen to, but this show gets to be misogynistic and portray this woman as weak, but then also claim to be feminist because she's in a position of power. Didn't love it. That being said, we're only 20 minutes in. Happy to give it a shot. Okay, so they say that it's been 16 years since the last sighting of the burned one, one of the burned ones. (laughs) I just had a side note here. Like, did all of the adults die between now and then that you're just relying on 16-year-olds to fight all of the burned ones? Anyway, so we cut to the orientation party. This is a beautiful open-air hall, by the way. It's very reminiscent of the, the Hogwarts courtyard. It's very pretty. Tara is talking to Aisha and Musa about the dead body that they found. Aisha and Musa pretty much make a joke at Tara's expense, and then Aisha turns around and grabs, like, seven thick cookies, and Musa's like, no judgment, but... And then Aisha says she eats, like, a million calories a day, and that if she didn't swim, she'd be massive, and Tara's just standing there, like, (laughs) as they're making this terrible fatphobic joke right in front of her and like not that it it would have made it better if she wasn't in front of them but that's not okay (laughs) like I know that everyone's insecure at this age and they probably don't realize what they're saying honestly like I have to call myself out I bet at that age if I'd made a comment like that and then I got called out on it I probably would have said something like oh but you're not fat you're beautiful Oh, cringe. We were so dumb in high school. Anyway, Musa's like, oh, I used to dance. I get it. And then they look like they bonded because they're like effortless and thin and hot. So then Aisha goes to leave and Musa references something that Aisha said earlier while Musa had her headphones in and pretended not to hear Tara. But apparently she did hear Aisha. So Tara calls her out on it. She's like, oh, so you did hear her when you ignored me earlier. And Musa's trying to make it better. She's like, oh, it's a me thing, not you. But Tara's like, no, like that was shitty. So she walks away. And Musa feels bad. You can see it on her face. And I really like the scene because Musa gets called out 
on her bad behavior and it's clear that she feels bad and Tara still walks away like she doesn't try to make excuses like you know help her out in the scene she's just like no that was bad like no thank you and walks away and I do think that Musa needed that moment of realization like oh shit I like did a thing that hurt somebody else I didn't want to hurt them that being said, I hope that the show is going to bring it back around to Musa understanding that she doesn't have to have this just like endless capacity for everyone at all times because the reality might be that she just doesn't do small talk. Maybe she doesn't care about plants. Maybe like whatever. She doesn't want to talk to Tara and she doesn't have to. But there are kind and compassionate ways of communicating that without just ignoring Tara or pretending to have your headphones in. This is a Julie Plex show and it's a bunch of kids, so I don't have high hopes, but I'm open to being pleasantly surprised. I hope that that's where it'll take it. So Tara finds her dad, who I think is the guy who was examining the dead body earlier, and she's, like, trying to escape away from the party to go to the greenhouse, and he's like, no, you love Althea. You should just be you. Have fun. So she does. Um, we cut to the headmistress's office where a girl tries to walk in. The assistant assistant is like, she's busy. Like, you, you can't be in here. <laughs> and the girl's like super entitled and shitty and she waves him off the headmistress comes to the door and she tells her off she's like okay cool don't care I'm busy you can go to the library this is such a satisfying moment because this chick really does look like someone who's just like trying to get their way and is like a real dick about it (laughs) we don't know who she is at this point but it's pretty obvious like She's going to be a problem later. Bloom is going over her diary. Again, another reference to the vampire diaries. So we flash back to a scene with her mom who's like, get out of the house. Like, have fun. You should be doing things. Like, I got weird vibes from mom being like, get out of the house. It's almost like she's like, I am like having a man come over later. Like, I really need you to be out, but I can't tell you why. It's it's strange. It's very aggressive. Um, and then she calls her a loner, which, yeah, that's rude. Bloom pushes her away. She's obviously hurt. But honestly, like, this writing seems really shrewy. Like, the mom is written as, like, almost an unnecessary asshole. I don't know. I think that comes back around later. But yeah, like, we either have to have unsupportive parents or dead parents. Like, that's always a theme in teen shows like this, where, like, the parents just have to be dead or just really fucked up and abusive. Like, I never see happy parents families except for ron's that's that was great (laughs) oops awkward editing video phobe here go to part two there was too much to fit it all into one episode